When the COVID-19 epidemic first began, I found myself doing something I'd never done before. I was looking for prayers in the Anglican prayer book to pray during a time of plague or epidemic. And well, as it turns out, there aren't many prayers for such a situation in modern prayer books. But I did find a prayer in the older book, the one from 1662. Now, plagues were a more common occurrence at that time. In fact, only three years after that prayer book was authorized, there was a terrible outbreak of bubonic plague that ended up killing nearly 15% of the population around London. So it's no surprise that they would have prayers for that sort of thing. What did surprise me though, was the prayer itself. I expected that the prayer would lament the sickness. I expected it to ask God for healing and protection and maybe for consolation for all of the grief that comes in the wake of such an epidemic. What I didn't expect, however, was for the prayer to suggest that perhaps God himself had brought about this suffering and that maybe he had good reasons for doing so. And yet, that's exactly what the prayer says. Just listen to this. Almighty God, who in thy wrath did send a plague upon thine own people in the wilderness for their obstinate rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and also in the time of King David did slay with the plague of pestilence threescore and ten thousand, and yet, remembering thy mercy, did save the rest. Have pity upon us, miserable sinners, who now are visited with great sickness and mortality, that as thou didst then accept an atonement and didst command the destroying angel to cease from punishing, so it may now please thee to withdraw from us this plague, and grievous sickness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Can you imagine a minister getting up into his pulpit and praying that prayer in the midst of something like an outbreak of the bubonic plague? Uh, the prayer doesn't come right out and say that God himself has sent the plague, but it does at least entertain the possibility. And I think that most people today, including most Christians, recoil at such an idea. But Anglicans have been praying that prayer for centuries. And it's not just the prayer book that does this. The Bible does the same thing. In the book of Job, for instance, Job is voicing his grief and lament after his children have been killed and his property stolen and his body afflicted with a painful disease. And Job says, God has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Now, of course, the readers of Job know that God is not the one directly responsible for Job's great suffering. But there is still some truth in Job's words. And Job isn't the only one who feels that way. In the second chapter of Lamentations, the second poem of that book of Lament, we find a very similar sentiment, albeit said in an even more shocking way. 
The first poem of Lamentations bewailed the pain and suffering that had befallen Jerusalem. Look and listen to my pain. See what has happened. That was the message of the first poem. It's a poem full of grief and absent, really, any comfort. But as bad as it is, the second poem is, if anything, even more heartbreaking. Because now the poet turns his attention from the grief of the people to the one who has brought this grief upon them. And it isn't Nebuchadnezzar or his Babylonian armies. No, it is God himself. He is the one who has brought this destruction upon his people. He is the one who, in the haunting words of verses 4 and 5, has become like an enemy to them. What does the poet mean by these words? And how in the world are they supposed to help us? as we lament the pain and suffering that we continue to experience today? Well, those are the questions I'd like to address in this session. And let's begin with that first question. What is the poet saying exactly in this chapter? Well, it's easier to understand if you divide it up into three sections. The first 10 verses describe, just like chapter 1, they describe the destruction of Jerusalem. But this time, the focus isn't just on what has happened. The poet still talks about what happened, about the death in the city, and about the shame that has come upon all of its inhabitants. He remembers the past glory of Jerusalem and its temple and its beauty, and he contrasts that with the humiliation and the grief all around. But his focus isn't just on what's happened. His focus is on who it has who it is who has brought about this great calamity. The Lord, he says, the Lord in his anger has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has swallowed up Israel. He has laid and ruined its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Again and again, over these first 10 verses, the poet hammers home the same message. Jerusalem has been destroyed, and it is the Lord, the God of Israel, who has brought about their destruction. Starting in verse 11, however, There is a shift in theme. Up to this point, the the poet's been recounting all that has taken place. But then, beginning in verse 11, he seems to be completely overtaken by the grief of it all, once again. And the pain that he expresses, well, it's, it's almost unimaginable. My eyes are spent with weeping, he says. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. When you first read these verses, you might think they're somewhat redundant. After all, didn't the poet cover all of this in the first poem? 
Haven't we already heard vivid and painful expressions of grief? But to think that way is to misunderstand the purpose of Lamentations. Remember, as I said in the first session, this book is not written as a theological treatise. It's a liturgy of grief. Its purpose is to guide those who are experiencing pain and loss, to give them words, to guide them through their grief. And when you think of it like that, then these repeated expressions of grief, they begin to make sense. Because, well, as those who've experienced such loss knows, that's how grief feels. It doesn't just hit you once. It's not something you can just express one time and then get it over. No, grief is something that hits you again and again at unexpected times. As the writer Joan Didion puts it, grief comes in waves, paroxysms, sudden apprehensions that weaken the knees and blind the eyes and obliterate the dailiness of life. That's what the author is experiencing and expressing these overwhelming waves of grief that keep washing over him. And this grief, it's only made more painful by the knowledge that the destruction of Jerusalem has come at the hands of its God. But then something strange happens. The poem began with the recognition of the Lord as the one who brought about this time of suffering. And then, of course, devolved into that overwhelming grief. But then in the final five verses, the poet begins to voice the prayers of Jerusalem. Prayers to God. Prayers to the same God who was responsible for the destruction of the city. Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. What are we to make of this prayer? Really, what are we to make of this whole chapter? How can it start by identifying the Lord as the one who has become like an enemy of his own people and then dissolve into tears once more and then turn in prayer to that same God who brought Judah's time of suffering upon them. How do we make sense of this? What does this poem teach us about how to respond to pain and suffering in faith? Well, the first thing that it teaches us is that God is providential. The Lord may not have been the one who wielded the sword in the day of Jerusalem's downfall, but the poet recognizes that the Lord is sovereign even amidst tragedy. Now, as Christians today, we still, of course, believe that this is true, but for many of us, it's a truth that's more like an idea that we believe rather than a conviction that we carry about through the day. Our instinct, at least in the modern world, our instinct is to, to look for causes that we can see and that we can study to try to take control over bad situations ourselves. But the instinct of this Jewish poet was different. He assumed that God was sovereign over the events of his people's lives. And because of that, he didn't 
just lament. He turned his attention to God and he addressed the one that he knew was truly in control. So that's one thing that we can learn from this poem. It reminds us that God is not just present in our suffering, but that he remains providential even amidst it. But that's not the only thing we learn here. There's a reason that the poet turns to God in prayer in the final five verses. And it's not just because he's convinced that God alone presides over the lives of his people. No, it's because no matter what has happened to Jerusalem, no matter how terrible God's judgment may seem, the poet knows that the Lord has not really abandoned his people. We'll see this even more clearly in our next session when we look at chapter 3. But even here in this chapter, in the exhortation in verse 19, to pour out your heart like water before the Lord, there is this unshakable conviction in the goodness and the faithfulness of God that he hears the cries of his people and that he will ultimately work for their good that he will remain true to his promises and and true to his character. In the moment, God may seem to have taken the role of an adversary, but the author knows that God, who God really is, he knows that God's desire is for his people to flourish, not to perish. There are two fundamental convictions undergirding this poem. And they might seem at odds with one another, but in fact, they are both true. God is sovereign and God is good. Uh, we may not always understand how to make sense of these two, especially during times of loss or pain. Uh, this poet didn't, make, didn't know how to make sense of them. But if you believe them, then you too can pray as he did. I began this session talking about a prayer from the 17th century Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And I'd like to end by giving another example from that book. It's an exhortation that comes from the liturgy that a minister is supposed to use whenever he's visiting those who are sick. The exhortation begins with a reminder of God's providence. Dearly beloved, Know this, that Almighty God is the Lord of life and death, and of all things pertaining to them, such as youth, strength, health, age, weakness, and sickness. Uh, then after that, the minister goes even further, directing the sick person's attention to how God might be at work in their suffering. Wherefore, he says, whatsoever your sickness is, know you certainly that it is God's visitation. Now, of course, the minister does not know why God may have allowed someone to be afflicted with sickness. Unlike the situation with Jerusalem and Lamentations, there's no reason to believe that illness is a consequence of a person's sin. And the exhortation says as much. We don't know the purposes of God in our suffering. But, in the confidence that God is both sovereign and good, we can pray 
And that's just what the exhortation instructs the sick person to do. Know you certainly, it concludes, that if you truly repent you of your sins and bear your sickness patiently, trusting in God's mercy for his dear son, Jesus Christ's sake, it shall turn to your profit and help you forward in the way that leadeth unto everlasting life. That exhortation, it was written more than 2,000 years after the book of Lamentations. But the core convictions animating its response to a time of pain and grief, they're the same. Although we may not understand God's purposes, we do know that he is Lord over both life and death. And we can trust in his mercy and grace, even in a time of pain. And because of that, even as we grieve, we need not, as St. Paul said, grieve as those who have no hope. Because we know that God is good. And we know that he hears our cries. <laughs>